0: Welcome to the operative word, a podcast brought to you by the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Jamie Coleman. And throughout this series, Dr. Dante Ye and I will speak with recently published authors about the motivation behind their latest research and the clinical implications it has for the practicing surgeon. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and not necessarily that of the American College of Surgeons.
1: Welcome to The Operative Word, a podcast from the Journal of the American College of Surgeons. I'm Dr. Dante Ye, one of your co-hosts for the series. In this episode, we'll be taking an in-depth look into the current article, Analyzing Impact of Multimorbidity on Long-Term Outcomes After Emergency General Surgery, a Retrospective Observational Cohort Study. I'm honored to be joined by the lead author, Dr. Claire Rosen, MD, from the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. Claire, thank you for joining me today. Before we begin, do you have any potential conflicts of interest to disclose?
0: I do not. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Our work was funded by the National Institutes on Aging through an F32 and an R01, but we have no financial disclosures.
1: All right, great, thank you. Dr. Rosen, can you give us a brief summary of your study design and describe to us your main findings?
0: In this study, we really wanted to understand how multimorbidity impacted outcomes through six months on patients who had operative management of emergency general surgery conditions. So we used Medicare data and we did a retrospective observational cohort study, and we defined multimorbidity using qualifying comorbidity sets. Um, Qualifying comorbidity sets were created by Dr. Jeff Silber at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia a few years ago. And basically they found these specific single, double, and triple combinations of comorbid conditions that when they're present together, they confer a greater than two-fold risk of in-hospital mortality after a general surgery operation. So some of our prior pilot work um, supported this current study where we were applying that definition of multimorbidity to a national cohort and looking at outcomes beyond just inpatient mortality, but looking at outcomes like inpatient mortality, readmissions, discharge destination, use of new durable medical equipment through six months after their emergency general surgery operation. We found in this study that patients who are multimorbid and who have surgery for an emergency general surgery condition have higher risks of death not only during their index hospitalization where they have a 3-time odds of in-hospital mortality but they also have higher risk of death through 6 months after surgery you know 2.33 times higher odds of death through 6 months or 17% of the multimorbid patients were dying at 6 months compared to only 3% of the non-multimorbid patients multimorbid patients also had higher rates of readmission um, all the way from one month, all the way through six months at six months, a multimorbid patient had a 40% likelihood of readmission compared to only 20% among the non-multimorbid patients. Multimorbid patients had lower rates of discharge to home around 40% compared to 75% of the non-multimorbid patients. They had higher rates of discharge to a skilled nursing facility or rehab, a third of patients compared to only 11% of patients. They had higher rates of using new durable medical equipment. And I think all of these things are really important because patients care about more than just their risk of dying in the hospital. They want to know what their life is going to look like after surgery for an emergent condition. So we were really trying in this study to use claims-based metrics to paint a picture of quality of life and independence after surgery. I think the other thing important to point out is although the non-multimorbid patients didn't have a specific combination of comorbidities to to satisfy a qualifying comorbidity set, the majority of those patients still had multiple comorbidities. So this study really showed us there's something about the way that specific comorbidities interact that wind up influencing a patient's overall risk for poor outcomes after um, a surgical intervention.
1: Great. Thank you for that summary. Yeah, I, I personally was not familiar with this qualifying comorbidity set until I read your manuscript, but I, I went back and pulled the reference that uh, of the original validating data set that you guys did. And I thought it was really interesting. So the the table here says that there's 576 qualifying comorbidity sets, and you listed about 113 in that prior publication. And it's, it's really fascinating to see, like, for example, which is more comorbid: the combination of heart failure and thrombocytopenia, or the combination of diabetes and pneumonia. Right? Like, I, as a as a clinician bed at the bedside, I had no idea. Like, which is which is worse to have atrial fibrillation with COPD or peripheral vascular disease and coagulopathy? Right. So this you know this this study that you reference is is really fascinating, and I, I really like it. The um, the two things that I really liked about your study are that number one, you you looked at the outcomes all the way out to six months, and I think that's really important because our outcomes don't just end at hospital discharge, right? So we need to be following these patients out six months or even longer, uh, and I think you give a more realistic picture of what their uh, long term longer term outcomes will be. And secondly, you didn't focus only on mortality. Right, and and so we're we're really starting to understand now that there's so much more to life than simply surviving. And uh, when I've met with families, you know, in the ICU or or um, you know in the pre-upholding area, and some patients, right, will will value life no matter what it is, as long as they're drawing breath. Whereas others, if they can't be, you know, the patriarch going out and chopping wood and, and supporting the family. Uh, they, they, it's not a life worth living to them. And I think that your study really teases apart some of the nuances that, um, that go into this sort of complicated decision-making. Yeah. Do you, are you aware, um, has anyone actually surveyed patients themselves about the relative weight that they assign to these non-mortality outcomes, such as discharge to a nursing home or being dependent on a walker?
0: Yeah. So, you know, our group has not yet surveyed patients, but when you review the literature and we've talked to some of our colleagues, there is a body of work, mostly qualitative studies, um, that look at what patients want to know. Some of them say patients want to know more than we tell them. They don't really, I mean, yes, obviously death is important, but they they care about honesty from, from their surgeons. They care about knowing what their life looks like after surgery. Um, Sometimes they, they think that certain things could constitute a state worse than death. Like some patients say that loss of their physical or their cognitive independence might even be worse than not surviving something. Some people care a lot about the burden that they feel they place on their family. Um, and I think that being able to better understand what life looks like after surgery can help us better paint a picture for patients so that they can figure out What they really want, and then we can figure out how to get them to where they want to be. Um, You know, I had a family member who was very sick in, in the ICU for the last several months of his life. And despite the fact that I'm a surgical resident and I had worked in similar ICUs, there was such a lack of communication. It was so obvious to me that his doctors saw recovery as discharge from the ICU. We saw recovery as him coming back home, getting back to some of his hobbies, you know, doing crossword puzzles again. And it felt like at the end of the day, we were all very unhappy with the lack of communication. And I can only imagine that for somebody without medical training and without medical background, it feels like even more of a disconnect than I felt as someone who, you know, understands that world a little bit. Um, I think also when you use, administrative claims to do research, you have to find a balance between what you can study and what you'd like to study, right? We can't use claims databases to say, oh, did you enjoy your life? Did you get back to your hobbies after surgery? That doesn't exist, that's not realistic. So it's finding a balance between understanding some patient-centered outcomes with what we can realistically do. I think if we're creative, we can learn more about functional status and independence than what might be immediately obvious in claims data. For example, we my team is now working on looking at days spent outside of a healthcare facility as a patient-centered metric. So hospital-free days or days alive and out of the hospital. We sometimes call them happy days uh, <laughs> to try to use that as a metric that's painting a picture of what life actually looks like. After being in the hospital for something like emergency general surgery,
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and and in fact, it, it seems like a, a ripe research topic to just simply do a prospective survey of of patients, right? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't need tens of thousands of of subjects to get an idea of how much they value, for example, discharge to a nursing home versus discharge to uh, to to home. Yeah, so. Your, your database, speaking of administrative claims, so you, your research was based on the Medicare uh, database, which if I'm not a, uh, mistaken, is restricted to only patients who are age 65 or greater. Um, is that correct? Yes, I, correct. So, so obviously they, um, this patient population has had a chance to accumulate a lot of morbid, comorbid medical conditions throughout their life, but they, there are some, strengths and weaknesses with every large database. And the other ones that I'm sort of familiar with are the American College of Surgeons NISQIP database, the nationwide inpatient sample, and also the, the national readmissions database. Can you tell me uh, what, are, what are some benefits of using your database compared to the others? And, and um, would, would it be useful to, uh, to validate these, these findings in other databases?
0: Yeah. So, in general, large data sets can fall into two buckets, clinical registries and administrative data sets. Something like the ACS NISQIP is a clinical registry, and it provides valid and reliable outcome measures up to 30 days postoperatively, with more limited information on patient attributes and little, if any, information on the setting in which care is provided. Um, ACS NISQIP is almost exclusively limited to patients who have undergone an operation, while surgical care, especially in emergency general surgery, encompasses both surgical and medical management strategies. Um, In contrast, Medicare and the nationwide inpatient sample are examples of administrative data sets. So our Medicare data is nationally representative derived from claims, and allows linkage to patient encounters in both the inpatient and outpatient settings beyond individual hospitalizations, which is really valuable for studying longitudinal outcomes. Um, the data are available only for patients over 65, but do capture the universe of, non-federal, of non-federally funded hospitals um, across, the, across the country. Many Medicare data sets also include information about prescription drugs and durable medical equipment use to give us more of an insight into patients' lives and clinical status. Um, The nationwide inpatient sample uses discharge data and a weighting system to approximate national norms based on a convenient sample of hospitals, but doesn't actually sample all hospitals, and it can't be used to follow patients longitudinally. Um, at this time, our study could be replicated in any database that includes ICD-9 or ICD-10 diagnosis codes, and would be great to replicate in other databases and valid- databases and validate what we found. But we are currently working to develop a clinical definition for all of the claims-defined comorbidities that are part of a qualifying comorbidity set, so that. The QCAT qualifying comorbidity set definition of multimorbidity could be applied to prospective clinical research, to clinical data database, databases, and eventually for clinical use. Um, so that's our next step.
1: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that sounds like it's going to be a very useful uh, research tool moving forward. So, so just so I, um, you know, can can understand clearly. So the Medicare database is useful because you can actually track the patients before their hospitalization. You can see what diagnoses they had in like the year before they were hospitalized for whatever emergency general surgery indication that they had, right? Wow. And furthermore, you can track them long after discharge beyond the 30 days that is a, a, a limit for some of the other data sets. And also you have these, more, um, the, these non-mortality outcomes such as durable medical equipment.
0: Yeah, exactly. And especially being able to track a patient's comorbidities before hospitalization, I think is so important so that we don't confuse a comorbidity with a complication or something that's new after surgery, especially, things like, you know, requiring home oxygen or having kidney failure. Those things can happen after a major physiological ins- you know insult, especially to an older patient. So keeping that separate and making sure that we can see what a patient looks like before they come in with their diagnosis.
1: Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a great strength of the data set that you used. So the Medicare population, how do you think that they differ from, for example, patients who are aged greater than 65 who have private insurance? Do we know, do we have that answer out there already?
0: Not quite. So I think the biggest benefit to Medicare data is that 95% of the eligible US elderly population is enrolled in Medicare coverage, which offers us an enormous and comprehensive population. And I think it would probably be unlikely that an older population that's insured definitely would see a different result. That being said, just under 40% of adults over 65 do have private insurance. So it would be great to extend this type of work to both privately insured and younger populations that could still be multimorbid to see how things play out.
1: Yeah, yeah. I can imagine that a 40-year-old with atrial fibrillation, diabetes, and peripheral vascular disease may be slightly different risk than a 75-year-old with those same comorbid medical conditions. Yeah. Okay. So how do you envision using the results of your study to inform clinical care at the bedside?
0: Well, I think that this study was a huge step forward in applying the QCS definition of multimorbidity and could give surgeons something important to think about. If they recognize that a patient's multimorbid, maybe that should flag something in their mind. Like, oh, this person could be at a specifically higher risk for, you know, dying for needing to come back to the hospital for maybe not going home than they would had they just had multiple comorbidities and not be truly multimorbid. They did not have that specific combination. That being said, I think that our study still lacks a lot of the granular details that I'd like to see in future work. You know, we're looking at multimorbidity as a binary, but what about the specific qualifying comorbidity sets? Like what's the risk that goes along with each individual combination of comorbidities? How does this look for individual emergency general surgery diagnoses instead of the condition buckets that are commonly used in in this type of research and what we used in our study? I think that really be the best way to move forward in applying this clinically my pie in the sky, great idea, or like perfect future is that an electronic medical record will look at a patient's past history and and give a flag and say, hey, this patient's multimorbid. Are you aware that it could be associated with this type of risk so that it takes some of the activation energy out of a provider's recognition, but could still really valuably inform their decisions and inform the conversations with patients?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And and we have to take those data derived percentages and metrics and sort of apply it to the individual case, right? We have to place it within the patient's own values and and what they want out of life, which is always a challenge when we're armed with the statistics and the data, but we also have to listen to the patient. So, as the U.S. population ages, uh, Dr. Rosen's research is an important addition to the growing body of research describing the outcomes of older patients with frailty and multiple medical comorbidities. By reporting the incidence of patient-centered outcomes other than mortality, we clinicians are better prepared to counsel patients and their family members both before and after surgery. I really enjoyed reading this article, and I encourage all of our readers and listeners to read it as well. Thank you for listening to The Operative Word. Please send us any feedback at postmaster at Thank you for listening to the Journal of the American College of Surgeons Operative Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, spread the word on social media by using the hashtag JACSoperativeWord. Subscribe to The Operative Word wherever podcasts are available or listen on the American College of Surgeons website at FACS.org slash podcast.